we like to think that we're factual, but we're not. So you have to make people feel. If you can increase the emotional response, you'll increase their motivational. If you can make them feel, you can make them do. It's, it's stuff that brands have known forever. It's why when, you know, a brand is advertising, they don't talk about the ingredients. You know, they talk about that the product will make you feel more loved or more special. And it might be complete bullshit, but they get the need to make people feel. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, people behind the scenes of influence as it is today, or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Or at least that's what our episodes are usually about. But for this episode, we're going to do something just a little bit different. It's been nearly two years since Donald Trump was elected. And however you personally feel about his time so far as president, I would imagine most of us would agree that the day an ex-reality TV contestant got elected into one of the highest offices in the world, the rules of influence were officially rewritten. You know, what we all believed elections for office were about policy, past political expertise, personal values, all got thrown out of the window on both sides of the camp. And instead, personal profile and easy to digest sound bites seem to take center stage. So now that the dust has settled, although, you know, I'm not quite sure that that's how I would describe it, many of us are still left scratching our heads and wondering what on earth happened. And not just us. Hillary Clinton has since written a book of that exact title with that exact question. In fact, I was actually lucky enough to be in the room just a few weeks ago as she tried to shed a little light on the question itself. Bottom line, she's still just as flummoxed as the rest of us. So we thought now would be the perfect time, myself and the production team, to share a conversation I had actually nearly a year ago. We've kind of been sitting on it, just waiting for the for the right time to arrive. And this conversation is with a woman who has more understanding of what it takes to make or break a political candidate than almost anyone else in the country. Her name is Dee Madigan. You would know her from the Gruen transfer or now Gruen. She's won pretty much every advertising award going, has been the creative brains behind 10, 10 political campaigns and is the driving force behind Campaign Edge, which is a company dedicated to political strategy. In this conversation we looked at what it actually takes to get somebody elected and I think this is really important to understand the process and mechanics that go on behind the scenes to drive the conversations that enable us and convince us to vote a certain way including the impact social media had on the process or has on the process the public's exhaustion with perfection and polish and what these factors mean for our political leaders moving forwards It's a fascinating look behind the curtain at the high stakes world of political campaigns. But more than that, it's an important look at how anyone with an idea and enough passion and determination can potentially capture the minds and hearts of an entire nation. All I ask is that you use these insights wisely, please. And enough from me. Please enjoy this discussion with the fascinating and fierce D. Madigan.
Laura, welcome to the show, Dean Mack. Happy to be here. I'm going to kick off with the way that I always kick off, which is with the question, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And the reason I ask that, I always try and give a bit of background to it, is that I find that there's a bit of an assumption out there around introvertism and extrovertism. And, and that being that you can't be influential, you can't make a mark anywhere in a room, in the world, unless you're an extrovert. No, I would actually say I'm an introverted extrovert and I suspect a lot of people are. So I think there is a perception with me that I'm a very extroverted person, um, but I've, my, I, I need to pull back from people quite a lot. I need to spend time by myself where I find I, I don't know, it, it stresses me out a lot. Um, and I sort of have a, an internal dialogue that often is going on all the time. I, if I Basically, if I don't get my own company for at least an hour or two a day, I really, really struggle. So I would say I'm an extrovert, introvert. And social situations, which everyone thinks I cope with really well, I don't. I find I get massive anxiety going into places where I don't know people and that but I've just got better at hiding it. All right, well, let's just, let's jump straight in. So you worked for some of the world's best known brands, Coca-Cola, Rexona, Nestle, and then you switched focus. And I want to talk a little bit more about you switching focus later on in the interview. But for this part, you, you switched to social and political marketing. And that includes states, federal election campaigns. And I've got here in my notes that you were creative director on over 10 elections which would have been a fascinating journey all to itself. And when I was going through my research, I found a quote which may or may not be a misquote that said, as a media advisor, you view politicians the same way you view brands. And you believe that with the right campaign, anyone can be elected. So tell me a little bit more about that because I find that both heartening and totally <laughs> terrifying. Um, I should, uh, that probably needs a little bit more nuance with the right campaign and also the right public sentiment out there. You know, sometimes you can do the best campaign in the world and not get a good person elected. So it does take a few things out of it. But yeah, in terms of how I view politicians, some of them really hate it when I say it's like a brand because I think a lot of people think of a brand as a really silly thing like a logo or a strap line. But when I explain that a brand is not actually what you're saying, it's what people feel about you. And if a brand is a promise, a good brand is a promise kept. That absolutely is, you know, politics and, and, you know, how you, it's not, you know, how you look and what you speak, but what you stand for is actually part of your brand. I think it's just the word brand has such capitalistic connotations that some of my more left-wing politicians think of it as a bad thing, where it's, it's, it's not, and I just sort of say to them, it's, it's really about the relationship you have with your voters, that's your brand, really. I like that phrase, a brand is a promise kept. I think when I talk to people about branding from a thought leadership or an influencer point of view, the first thing that I find a lot of people come back with, but it's not about me. You know, it's, it, it doesn't need to be about me. And no, it doesn't need to be about you. It doesn't need to be about attention, but it does need to be about you standing up fully owning your message. Otherwise, this isn't, this isn't going to work. And it also means actually fulfilling what you've kind of what your message says you're going to do. And that that's back to the promise kept thing. You know, <laughs> the best brand in the world won't work if the product is no good. True. So, so, so it's about what people think about you, but they're going to think about you in terms of whether you deliver on what you said you're going to deliver, whether it's a cornflake that promises something or a politician who promises something. Ultimately, the brand itself is about the experience people have with you. I was having this conversation a couple of nights ago. I was running a masterclass and somebody asked me about um, 
I can't remember their exact words, but it was essentially what's the role of, of being perfect in all of this? What's the role of when you stand up and, and you're seen, what's the role of being perfect? And I was saying, the fascinating thing about human nature is we assume that if we're going to go out there, be it a brand, be it a huge brand or be it an individual, if we're going to go out there, we have to be seen as perfect, polished, bulletproof. And yet if you look at who we follow and if you look at who we're captivated by and if you look at who we trust, they're all the people that go out, what's and all, real journey, we made this mistake, we fixed it, I got better, I fell, I fell down, I got back up. They're the people that we buy into, yet when it's us, we assume that we're, the perfection is what's needed. Which is my ongoing struggle with politicians. They like to present a very perfect um, portrait of themselves. And, um, and I sort of say often, you know, no one buys perfect. When someone's acting really perfect, you actually assume they're hiding a whole lot of stuff anyway. Mm. And, and, and it's the humanness. And making mistakes is part of our humanness. That actually connects politicians with people. So when a politician goes up and says, oh, you know, we haven't done this quite right, but we're really working on it, the public responds to that in a far better way than the politician goes, no, no, it's all right, nothing to see here, nothing to see here, because people know that that's bullshit. Yeah. And also the, the you don't get me factor. I know for speakers, the speakers that I've seen get on stage, very successful people talking about, this is what I did, it was amazing. I did this. I did this. You can learn from me. I killed it. And, and you know, like a da 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 kind of a message. You can you can feel the room pull back. Like you can visibly watch people's bodies go back a few inches. And yet again, the person that gets up and goes, Do you know what? <laughs> I had this point. I was on my knees. I thought it was going to fail. And then I got back up. And the next day, I went back into the ring again. I had no. I was making it up, but I somehow managed to make make it work suddenly everybody goes, A, I could be that. I could yeah. be that. Another, he, she gets me because that's how I feel sometimes and they get me. And for a politician that he, she gets me, I'm imagining would be a huge thing. It is, it is. And I know when I'm speaking, one of the things I am often talk about is the 2012 Queensland election and we got smashed, not even a little bit smashed. We got, you know, wiped out. There was seven <laughs> MPs left and it was my first election. And it was horrific. But I can tell you, you know, it wasn't like we turned it around. We didn't. Um, but what you learn, you know, wins are great. You know, I, wins are so much more fun than losing. But what you learn from a loss is so much more valuable. You know, I would have rewritten that campaign in my head probably a million times since. And and, and my, my expertise now is so much greater because of of that loss. Had my first couple of campaigns been wins, I'd probably have been cocky, a bit arrogant. Now I know exactly what can go wrong. And it makes you so much better at your job, as, as awful, as awful as it was at the time. And it was unbelievably awful. Mm. I, you know, we don't want to learn from rosy-cheeked um, <laughs> winners in a way. You know, we want, to, we want to learn from the gladiator. We want to learn from someone that is, has the battle scars. We want to learn from somebody who's been out there, done it, their face has hit the dust and yes. they're back and they can tell you what works and what doesn't. What's the largest difference between promoting a brand and promoting what is essentially a person? Um, there's surprisingly less difference than people would think. And I think a lot of politicians don't like it when I refer to them or, or politics as brands because I think they think that a brand is like a logo or a strap line and it's not. A brand is not even what you say about yourself. It's what people feel about you. So in a sense, a politician is a brand. So if you, if I gave you a, a person, a completely blank slate of a person, um, difficult, I know, because there are emotions associated with different parties. 
what what's the mechanics here? Like, what would you, well, let's start here. What's the first conversation you would have with me? You're sitting me down, I'm a new candidate. What do you want me to know about the journey that's ahead of me? Because <laughs> that really would tell you a lot about the journey, <laughs> I think. Do you really want to do this? What I'd say, um, generally, all good sales come from, and I hate the word authentic because it gets bandied around all the time, but um, just as you can't create something from nothing, you can't make someone be someone that they're not. So my first thing would actually be listening to them and trying to get a sense of who they are. Because if you try to manufacture something, the cracks will appear somewhere sometime and people sense that they smell when something's not real and it works against you. So I really try to get a sense of who they are as a person and what their story is and how that might connect to the voters. What are the connections between kind of what they offer, their brand promise, if you like, and how that fulfills some sort of need in voters. Because voters are choosing to vote to answer a need. That's why people purchase anything and choosing to vote for a political party is actually a purchasing decision. Does that moment happen when you sit someone down and you say, okay, I need every skeleton in your closet and I need to know it now? That's not my job. That um, is the state secretary's job um, of the party and they will vet them and vet them and then say, you know, you have to. But, but, you know, you certainly look at the people you're opposing. You always do a bit of an internet dig (laughs) around to see what you find and you do do it on your own candidates as well. You know, the thing with social media now is... Everything's up out there. So I find, are we going to struggle to get candidates maybe in about five or 10 years' time because someone will put something dumb on Facebook? Or it might work the other way. We might get real people and everyone might be more accepting of the fact that everyone stuffs up and says the wrong thing and does the wrong thing, you know? So maybe it'll actually make it people more willing to accept sort of more flawed characters. I think that that's, that's going to be a, a fascinating um, journey. Because eventually we're going to have to get to the point because everything that we've said and thought over the past decade is out there. We're all maybe, maybe not going to have to get to the stage where we go, actually, we're all flawed human beings. We've all said things yeah. before. If we regret it, we just got to let it go. This exactly. search for this perfect human is, yes. is a waste of everybody's time and energy. Absolutely. Although most people curate their own perfect lives on social media anyway. But but sometimes, yeah, politicians, I think it's what happens is I always tell MPs, you know, don't drink and post. <laughs> because, and that, that's kind of the thing. Lifelong lesson of What makes perfect sense at three o'clock in the morning when you're three sheets to the wind isn't the sen- most sensible thing. And you can delete it, but, you know, you, you can find deleted stuff easy enough online. And so what's the, what's the basic formula? Give me, is there a formula to a campaign? So you sit down... <laughs> Um, well, it, it depends on where your party is. So if your party is in power um, and they've only just been in power maybe for one term or something, your basic campaign strategy is we are heading in the right direction kind of thing. It's not time to change horses midstream. You you need to sort of say we've achieved some stuff, but you don't want to sort of be all up yourselves because Australians don't like up themselves, people. Um, if you've been in for a long time, it's a trickier one because the mood for change starts to happen regardless. You know, eventually people want change, but you might sort of, if it's a bit of an uncertain time in the world, you might sort of push for the need for stability. If you are the challenger, then it's a different um, sort of, it's a different show completely. You might be, you know, it is time for a change. It's time for new blood. So there's sort of some formulas kind of, but then um, how they really sort of come to life depends entirely on the characters of the people that you're against and also the characters of the people you're representing and how you can sort of, I guess, put them 
opposite to each other? What's what's the framework for the narrative for the positive and the negative? And, and that depends a lot on individual kind of circumstances. So basically who you're competing against will really dictate the strengths and weaknesses that you're going to look to highlight. Yeah, particularly if you're the challenger, you define yourself about who you're not. Mm. Um, but I think increasingly um, people are looking for something more than just the negative. I think we've seen that with Corbyn um, and even with Sanders um, in America, that particularly younger people are looking for something that is a bit more visionary than just what you don't like. Yeah. I, you said in a previous conversation that we had that swinging voters vote against. I think, I mean, yeah. again, I'm probably misquoting you. No, that's true. Which, take that out of the political sphere for a second, that basically means that people who are on the fence, people who don't have a position right now, they will vote against something more so than they will vote for something. So essentially fear works in, yeah, that, well, in that world. Why, the reason it works, and I think that it's, it's an age thing as well, I think that younger people actually will probably more likely vote for something because they tend to have a more positive view of, of the future. But um, say past even 30, the swinging voters, they're, they're not sitting on the fence because they're choosing. They're actually really, really disengaged. And what we know is that um, we're hardwired to notice bad things. So if you're on the newspaper sites in the morning, you always click on the bad stuff. We're actually hardwired to notice negativity. Um, it, and fear increases motivational responses, much more so than positivity. And it's also more likely to get people to drive them to find out more. So there's a whole lot of reasons why, despite people hating negative ads, um, they tend to be more effective um, than positive ads. Can you give me an example of where that's been really successful? Um, in Queensland in 2009, um, Labor was looking at defeat. They'd been in power for a very, very long time. Um, but then Neil Lawrence, the late great Neil Lawrence, who's probably one of the best um, political ad makers in Australia, did this ad. He got this snippet from their leader, of the LNP's leader, just saying, oh, uh, we're not really in a, a, a world recession. It's not a global financial crisis at all. And, um, and he just contrasted that with world leaders saying just how severe this GFC was and it just made this guy look like an absolute idiot. And it was one of the few times where you can just really see one ad swung an election, an election result. Um, and then you had the same in, um, and I can't remember the year, but it was when the GST was coming in and the leader at the time, and I said, <laughs> had to explain how the GST um, worked on a cake. Oh, I remember and, that. Yeah, and, and so, so it's just sometimes, just, and that then, of course, gets played out and yeah, as soon as a moment like that happens, you stick stuff in ads immediately. Things like that can turn an election very, very quickly. And that was basically he couldn't, could he? He couldn't explain how GST and, would and work he, for, yeah. for a basic household item like a cake. Yeah, yeah. And so, so something like that can work. And what you do is, is you watch for the stuff like that and as soon as, as soon as it happens, you're in your head, start putting it together in an ad. And... Okay, so that's the fear-based stuff and we all know that that, you know, we know that that sells, we know that that works and we know that primarily we're hardwired for that stuff. Yeah. Flip that for a second. Is there any examples of where something visionary yeah. has been out? And again, it depends on um, the mood of the electorate. You can't create a mood. But when there is a mood for change already out there, it's something that you can harness in a positive way. So we saw it with It's Time, with Goff in 72. We also saw it um, with Kevin 07 in 2007. Um, we saw it with Yes, We Can with Obama, the first Obama campaign. So when there is a mood out there, 
you can absolutely harness it for positivity. It tends to work when there has been a conservative government in power for a very long time. And then when the, there's this sort of mood for progressive social change. And so really politics is actually reflecting society and the campaign is reflecting society. And that's actually when it works strongest rather than sort of trying to create something out of nothing. So it's easier to basically swim with the stream than, than oh, swim against the stream. Absolutely, absolutely. And every campaign, go, like everyone's like, it's time, the best slogan ever. It's like the slogan itself had actually been used in various iterations many, many times. It was simply matching it to the right place. And also the ads, you know, it was the first time where it was sort of, you know, music and singing and dancing in Australian election ads. Americans have had those sort of ads for a while. And how have the different, have the different channels changed things? I mean, I noticed particularly with Obama, actually, probably because I was paying more attention, that suddenly, firstly, you could micro-donate, which was a, a brand new thing. So you, could, you could donate towards his campaign, 50 cents, a dollar, $2 if you wanted to. Um, also the rise of social media. I'm assuming in your career, you've seen the channel shift hugely. What's the biggest impact that that's had? Um, social media, just being able to talk to different people um, in very, very small groups. In Facebook, we can buy in five kilometre radius things. So that means you can localise massively. So it means when you are thinking about a campaign, you think about how it looks on the big TV campaign, but you're also thinking about how that narrative works on a micro-targeted level to a specific target audience. Because what you want is every touch point to feed into the overarching narrative, but different people are motivated by different things as well. So you make sure that your framework kind of covers all that. So for me, um, the one thing that hasn't changed though, um, is that a good idea is still a good idea and creativity is still really important. And I think at first people with social media, they just thought, well, we know everything about this target audience, so therefore we can get to them. And it's like, you can get to them, but if you don't excite them or interest them in some kind of way, yes, they're still gonna pay, not pay attention. It, it's very, I, saw you, I saw you speak once and you said creativity is the art and heart of persuasion. And I actually put this in my notes to talk to you about. What do you mean by that? Um, I think uh, particularly policy wonks, they always think that you can... A what, a what wonk? Policy wonks. We call them like people who are so into politics and policy that they just like, we can just tell people this policy and it'll be great. And you go, good luck with that. Um, and, and we can present them with these facts and facts don't change people's opinion we're having a climate change debate about facts that are well and truly settled you know which just proves how unpersuasive facts are because we're motivated by emotion not by facts we like to think that we're factual but we're not so you have to put emotion you have to make people feel if you can increase the emotional response you'll increase their motivation if you can make them feel you can make them do it's it's stuff that brands have known forever it's why when you know a brand is advertising they don't talk about the ingredients and stuff you know, they talk about that the product will make you feel more loved or more special. And it might be complete bullshit, but they get the need to make people feel. And is storytelling the primary the primary route for that? Like the, the oh, most effective I, I method? Whole, I get a bit over this whole, you know, it's all about storytelling. It's, it's all about starting conversations. Like, well, it's bullshit. It's all about persuading people to do what you want them to do. Sometimes telling a story is the way to do that. But I think it's become a bit of a buzzword by people who don't really understand that sometimes a creative idea is not about telling a story at all. There are different ways in, so it isn't just about telling a story, I think. What's what's one of the most creative um, and effective ones that you've seen then? Um, ads? Yeah. Ever? Okay. One of the best was actually the, um, the Daisy ad, which was back in the Cold War um, in the Nixon, I think it was, was it 72 or something? Anyway, um, Goldwater and Nixon, I think. And it was... Um, 
a little girl holding a daisy and just going, you know, pulling the leaves off, going ten, nine, eight, and as it did, it um, it, we heard the voice of someone counting down for a bomb coming off, and it was transposed on that, and then the end of it is um. Uh, we must love each other or we will die. It was basically saying that um, I think it was Goldwater was going to push us into a nuclear kind of war. And that worked. I, it's, if, you have, if you have a chance, look at it, just Google Daisy. Yeah, I will. And it's quite chilling because you get this massive juxtapose between this innocent little girl and this bomb. It worked because it harnessed an existing sentiment at the time, which was that the Cold War was very real and that the threat of nuclear war was very real. So it didn't create fear out of nothing. That doesn't work. It has to be based in real. And it only ran, I think, once or twice, but all the, it got picked up by the news and ran on the news. So people saw it then, which is, you know, the ideal ad where you don't have to pay for media where the news does it. And it's this to this day probably one of the best political ads. There's one thing that I heard you say once, which was um, it was a, a ball analogy where you said that people can catch one ball. If you throw a ball at them, they can catch one ball. Throw five balls at them at the same time and they'll catch none. And I was thinking about that before this interview and and the the link there to campaign slogans and how important campaign slogans are, as in it's usually the one message that gets caught. Um, and again, with Obama, I could tell you the yes, you can, yes, we can slogan, but I, I couldn't tell you any of his policies. And, and the same is true for most political campaigns, much to my my shame. How much thought goes into that slogan? Too much um, because there are very few cases where the slogans are memorable um, and the reason is because everyone puts in their two bobs worth and they want the slogan to do everything and it can't. By the time you try to make a slogan do everything, it's got, it's doing too much and it'll just sink under the weight of it. If you think of the slogans that you remember, which is like, say, Nike, just do it um, or um, is Donnie's good? You know, on their own, like is Donnie's good on its own doesn't actually mean anything. Put it in the context of a camp of the ad campaign and, and you actually understand it. And that's what slogans should do. But instead you get people who want the whole campaign to be summed up in the slogan and you end up with this incredibly logical, you know, for the future. It, sometimes it feels like writing a slogan. I could literally choose, get some app where I just put together a whole crite. Sort of like the, of, the Scrabble button where you press where you press the button and it just rearranges yeah. all the words. For all Australians, so blah, 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 blah. And you just go, oh, this is just meaningless stuff. Is there but, ever... Um, there's been some that have, um, where they've tried to be, um, <laughs> you know, exciting. And there was one the Liberal Party did, and I think it was 1984, and their slogan was, we're not waiting for the world. And it was the first time a slogan's been considered so, so bloody awful that it's credited with losing them the election campaign it was that but then also you have to think about how your slogan is war gamed so in um i think it might have been 87 um the liberals had the answer is liberal to which i think it was either hawk or keating said well it must have been a stupid question so you always think about how your slogan can be turned around tell tell me about that war gaming you've said that a couple of times and I, i have an idea of what i think it means but i'm i'm making it up well to make sure that you're always um you don't want to be going into a campaign not knowing what the other side's going to throw at you. So you always try to write ads and write slogans and write themes against yourself because it gives you an idea that once you know what the attacks are going to be, you can neutralise them either with your own campaign or at least you can sort of get some some messaging out there to do that. So, And, and I think sometimes it's very easy to 
you know, you think, oh, they'll say this, but th- that's just not true. And it's like, it's actually irrelevant whether it's true or not. If it's going to be out there, we need to know. So let's, you know, so that's actually quite, sometimes it's quite fun doing ads against yourself. Sometimes you just see how easy it is. And that's scary because, you know, if you're finding it easy, they're finding it easy. <laughs> they're finding it very easy because they're a yeah, little bit more motivated. Yeah. Yeah. And is, is the process literally that you get into a room and, right, sh- shoot me your worst? No, because then you get advertising by committee and that always um, always um, creates terrible ads. No, you work out, you always go away and think by either yourself or with just you and a, a, an art director or something and just um, throw around ideas. If you, if in a room you can think about what the ad needs to say, but in terms of the creative of the idea in the ad, no, I never let that happen by committee because you tend to try to keep up, come up with a really logical response and Good creative is lateral, so you're better off letting it just sit in your head for a, a, at least a couple of days. And then, you know, sometimes you just get this little brain connection, you'll be mm. out doing something. And because something's in your brain, like, oh, that might work on that. That's how you do good creative, not sitting in a room full of people. Um, I want to go way, way backwards, just for a second. Um, I had read about you that from a young age, you had a channel of communication with your with your dad. And that that wasn't always the easiest of relationships and you used to communicate via writing different lines of a poem. So you weren't actually physically talking to each other, yes. but you would yes. write a different line of a, of a poem. Yeah. We'd write stanzas. Yes. Yeah. And it reminded me, I had a very similar relationship with my grandfather, whereas he would, oh, yeah. he was a very stoic farmer and, and young girls should be seen and, and definitely not heard. So he would never speak to me in a room, but he would write me the longest, most beautiful letters and we had this pen pal relationship for years, but in a room, wouldn't even acknowledge me. <laughs> and it just got me, it got me wondering, is that, is that what gave you the initial obsession with the power of words? Um, no, no, I already, I already had that. All I ever wanted to do was write, like from as long as I can remember all I ever wanted to do was write. So that, so it was something, but it was certainly from my father, just as, as a child growing up, you know, he, um, when we were talking when I was little, like, you know, he, w- I remember he paid me, you know, $5 once to learn the man from Snowy River, all 13 verses of it. Um, and a, a lot of Irish poetry and Irish music are being with Irish parents. The oral tradition is incredibly strong. And I think it's from a people who weren't allowed to, um, weren't allowed to write things in that they learned to tell well, they, the education was removed from Gaelic and, they weren't even allowed to speak their own language. So so they kept their tradition alive through their oral tradition. So for Irish people, telling stories and, and also sort of later writing has always been an important thing. So, yeah, no, all I actually ever wanted to do was be a writer. And your, your father was a priest. Is that's Yes, not that's, a very good one, obviously. <laughs> the fact that you are here. Indeed, and Testament. my mother was a parishioner. Also not a very good one, clearly. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's been it's a bit of a theory of mine, and it's a completely untested theory. Yeah. That with all the speakers I've worked with around the world, a lot of them come from religious backgrounds. <laughs> and this is my this is my shoot in the dark theory. I think if you spend a part of your childhood watching somebody get up in front of a room full of people and be inspiring or um, have this amazing oration, something in you is inspired to go out there and maybe do the same. Was that true for you? Uh, I don't remember any priests being even vaguely inspiring really? the ones, our local ones were practically dead. Um, but I do remember at my parents' parties, at, and I think this is true of all Irish parties, 
everyone, there's no music being like through speakers or anything. Everything is live. So someone would get up and sing a song and someone would get up and say a poem. And that was actually really normal. And someone would say a story. And it might be, you know, this person might tell this particular story at every party. You heard it a million times and it didn't matter. It was still always funny because it was always delivered well. So, again, it was just being around people who could communicate really fun, but certainly not from the church. <laughs> and do you still surround yourself with that now? Is that an important part no, of your no, inspiration? When, when I left Melbourne, um, yeah, the Irish community was sort of, yeah, they're, they're probably still doing it down there, but up here, I, I've been now in Sydney since I was 19, so no, no. You um, you had been quoted, and the great thing about researching you, by the way, is there are there's so many quotes there. <laughs> so, you know, you're certainly not... You're certainly vocal, which I love, which I absolutely love. Um, you said during your advertising career, I made people feel pretty bad about themselves. A lot of women's products in particular, you're playing on guilt. Yes. And I just started to feel as is the best use of what I do. And was that a slow feeling coming up? Was that um, a particular campaign? Um, it wasn't one campaign. It was probably a lot of them there were certainly times you know during your career where you're just like oh this is some of it was much more subtle than that um but yeah even with tampons and things like that it would be um it's like you know god why do we have to have a chick on a beach in a bikini sort of stuff why are they always rollerboarding rollerboarding that's not even a thing rollerblading in a way it was sort of I i came to accept that and i just made sure that we just did it on really nice beaches then um, you know, around the world. Tampons took me around the world. If I had to do a chick on a beach, my God, it was going to be in Vietnam or Fiji or something like that. Um, but, no, it was sort of, it was a a gradual thing, but just increasingly when you're sort of, you know, doing things about fighting the signs of ageing, you're just going, maybe it's, it's like you know, ageing's the devil and 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 also all the empowering women stuff. And you just go, but your, your other brand is this sexist male, you know, just... I don't know, just, I just started to just lose patience with it and you'd have, you know, 27 people in there discussing the size of the logo and you just think, you'd just be sitting there going, I don't care, I just don't care. And when you get to that point where you just don't care, it's probably not in the client's best interest for you to sort of keep working on the brands. Yeah, you just, yeah. It, look, it was great fun. I, I, you know, I wouldn't put down the industry. It was... um. As a young creative, it was so much fun. Like I did, you know, you travel the world, you work with a lot of fun people, you earn a lot of money, you, you know, it's, it's fun, but at some point you just go, oh, that's enough. <laughs> and then you, I mean, I think that this particular campaign came after, but you, you can tell me, um, you launched a crowdfunding campaign, which was around Australia Day. Yeah, that was just this year. That was just this year. Can you... Yeah. Can you walk through that, like where that began and where it ended up? Because um, I think it's a just, pretty pivotal, considering what you've just said, to move on to this particular campaign is, is pretty incredible. Um, well, that just, um, that was literally a spur of the moment thing. I was on the phone talking to oh, probably Sam Dastiari or someone like that, just we were just talking about how shitty it was that this particular billboard had been taken down and I just sort of said, oh, we should get it back up. And Sam's like, yeah, why don't you do it? I was like, yeah, no, I will, I will then. And then I just um, got in in the morning and said to my MD, um, let's just do this. And so we just got the artwork 
put the um, set up a crowdfunding thing, and within two hours, I just launched it through my own social media channels, and I think we were hoping to get twenty thousand dollars to um, put the billboard back up, and I think we hit ended up hitting about one hundred and forty thousand, which was just well. I've got like, the I got the figures here. It's one hundred and sixty nine thousand. Uh, yeah. But just to, to a bit of background, so essentially what happened is there was an Australia Day campaign. It was feature. I've seen it. It was it's beautiful, featuring two young girls in hijabs. So two, two young Muslim girls celebrating Australia Day. And it was pulled after how long? How long was it up? Um, I don't know how long it was up, but the reason, the actual original ad didn't just have them. It had a whole lot of people because it was a moving billboard. So it had lots of different people, but the one that people got so cross about was those two girls. So it wasn't like this ad just featured them. It featured heaps of people, but everyone didn't want those girls on there. And so it was pulled um following threats, I think. Yes, from... and we, we never knew exactly um, what the threats were exactly, but, yeah, basically the billboard company said there's been threats and we're pulling it down and I just thought, well, no. And, and it was just, you just think about how those girls felt. Mm. You know, we, we were all about, oh, we're a multi, you know, multicultural society, everyone's welcome, and then we, this is the message that we're sending out to two Muslim girls. It's like this is just wrong. Um, so, Yeah. And you so took we, the fight out of the, the ring, which I thought was really interesting. So rather than taking the fight to the to traditional media, you, you took it on to Kickstarter, which for anyone that's out there trying to start a grassroots movement, I think that is a really fascinating decision that you made, which is, right, I'm just taking this to the public. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't have the money to put it back up anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, which is and, – and also I just knew that there was a lot of people – who felt really angry about it as well. And I think sometimes what you're getting from the sort of the Pauline Hanson kind of thing is she just says what everyone's thinking. And I just, I know that's not true. And, and I guess this was about not as just, not just about raising the money to get the billboards, but, but actually letting people know that there's actually lots of really good people out there who aren't thinking what Pauline Hanson's thinking at all. Mm. And, and they often don't get a voice. So it was a way of, with the money, of them actually just sort of, sort of saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm not racist, you know, and I, and I support this sort of thing. I mean, it was tricky as well because some people said, oh, well, it's celebrating um, Australia Day invasion and that, and, and, and I totally get that and where they were coming from and that, which is why we made sure that the leftover money went to Indigenous programs in the Northern Territory. Mm. Well, you, you had over 4,000 people support, which got 17 billboards 500 street posters, seven full-page press ads. Da, 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 da. I mean, that's incredible. That's an incredible response. There's a it lot was, of people who aren't thinking what Pauline Hansen is thinking. Exactly, exactly. And the, the best thing, the very best thing, was the response from the two little girls who just said, oh, it made me feel really happy. And I was like, you know what, that's that's kind of what yeah, it was all about. Enough. It was no more than that, really. Yeah. What's, what's influencing you right now? Oh, good question. Um, I'm really actually I'm really interested um, in the positivity of politics that's coming out of America and England. I'm just paying a lot of attention to that and just sort of seeing where that fits in Australia and how that can be used. Can you give me a little a, bit more positivity? Oh, um, particularly if you look at um, now they've got it's different over the, where you don't have compulsory voting because I think positivity actually gets people to vote, and in Australia we don't have that problem. But if you look at um, particularly in England. If you split it on age lines who voted, 
um, for Corbyn, it was massively the younger people. So it just suggests that that demographic um, we, we've ignored a little bit, I think, for politics. It's sort of, and I think, I think we need to stop doing that and, and give some sort of some more vision, some more visionary stuff in 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 how we look at sort of the future. Um, that's important. I think we need to reframe some of the debates on on the environment. I think we've lost that a little bit, and we need to get. We lost it. We lose everything in the framing. Um, you know, the fact that we're not talking about global warming, we're talking about climate change, which doesn't sound nearly as scary, is actually a really bad place for progressives to be. We let the um, conservatives frame everything. And then, so we did it in Australia, for example, instead of talking about a price on pollution, we called it a carbon tax. You know, you stick tax on the back of anything in your... So so for me, it's, I'm actually... Just Guaranteed really, to get no votes for that. Yeah, about about positive framing is my... my mindset at the moment and how we go about that in a more effective way. Mm, there's, a, there's actually, there's a, um, I think that there are researchers in the States who have written a book on charismatic language. I haven't read it yet. I have full intentions of yeah. reading it, but how language has such a huge impact on the way that we receive information and the way that we frame it and store it in our own heads. Yeah. And as we know, once we've got a belief about something, it's really hard yeah. to shift. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that, which is why you need to sort of get out early to sort of, you know, get into the right headspace of people because you're right, you know, you can't change their, their minds. But often it's very hard to get people to pay attention until just before an election anyway. So that's tricky. Mm. So. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it to a close now just with the, the final question that I usually ask, which is if I were able to give you a stage and a microphone and in front of you somehow with my magicy magicy wand was able to put everybody that you would ever want to influence... What's the one thing that you'd want them to know? Um, to remind them that not everyone starts off equally. And I've sort of, I've, I talk about this a, a bit. I think we talk about equality, but that's not quite right. It's, um, it's about equality of opportunity. And I think there is this assumption that we're, we all start at the same and we don't. And if you're starting, if you're assuming that, then you're like, well, they've got the same opportunities that me, there's me. I've been more successful because I must have worked harder or something. And that's, it's simply not true. So I think I think what we need to do is, is level it. And, and education and health are the two best ways to do that. So make sure that every kid that's born, you know, they may work harder than others, they may not, but at least they should get the same beginning, the same education, the same health opportunities. After that, yeah, it's up to individuals to a degree. But if, if we don't... If we're just assuming that everyone's starting at the same starting point, it's 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 incredibly unfair and it's simply not true. And and I think we like to do it because we like to own our success instead of admitting that a lot of it is just due to dumb dumb luck of birth. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say to people. Just you know, and I you know everyone's like you, know, you own your privilege kind of thing, but there there is truth in that. Is is we need to work harder. Um, so that everyone has you know, the, the same equality of opportunity, I think. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. It's been pleasure. an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you, Dean Madigan. No worries. <laughs>